Tonight's speaker is Ginevra Allen. I invite Dr Allen to present her lecture entitled Networks for Big Biomedical Data. Thank you. It's a real honour to be here. I'm, I'm really excited to be a part of this and uh, to speak today. So today I'm going to be speaking on networks for big biomedical data. And specifically what I would like uh, to talk about is what is big biomedical data? I'm going to give a couple of examples from neuroscience and genomics about the proliferation of data that's taken place and all of the new biomedical technologies out there producing this massive data dolge. And then talk about why it's so important for statisticians and mathematicians and data scientists and machine learners to get involved in this research and then highlight specifically a couple of examples of how we can use data science tools to understand neuroscience and brain networks and also genetic networks as well. Okay. So you might have heard this statistic before, um, and it's been floated around for actually a couple of years now, but everybody still says it's true, that 90% of all the data in the world has been generated in the past two years. Just think about that. That is a ton of data out there. And there, oops, it's still not quite. Um, and a lot of this data has actually come from, uh, in, in, from medical data. So this chart right here shows um, the growth of biomedical data hosted on the National Library of Medicine. Now this is in the US, funded by the National Institutes of Health, but you can see here this enormous um, uh, kind of exponential growth curve in the amount of data that has been generated and uploaded to the National Library of Medicine site. And all of this data, um, this example is genetic data. And in genetics data in particular, there has been an, uh, an enormous growth in this data because the cost of sequencing a human genome has dropped precipitously, faster than Moore's Law, which is on a log computing scale. So just think about this. In 1997, it cost $3 billion to sequence a human genome. Okay? When we say sequence a human genome, this means go through and, and, and record basically every single base pair in someone's human genome, okay? So it cost about $3 billion, and it kind of went on a long scale for a little bit. In 2003, um, in the United States, they launched the Human Genome Project, and this goal was to sequence 1,000 human genomes and then became to sequence 10,000 human genomes. And you see here about 2003, suddenly um, uh, things kind of got going and all of a sudden there was this huge splurge in, in biomedical technologies and now it costs less than $1,000, typically around $800 to get your entire human genome sequence. Again, this is over 3 billion base pairs. So this is an example of this surge in biomedical technology. So um, related to sequencing uh, the human genome, we see here um, this, this chart shows the number of kilobase pairs per day per machine that can be sequenced using current state-of-the-art biomedical technologies. And so we see here that at the start of the Human Genome Project, 
These were kind of called old generation sequencing technologies. And right around here, what was called next generation sequencing technologies took off, and you suddenly see the amount of uh, genomes that are able to be sequenced now. So now we have on the order of tens of thousands and a growing number of fully sequenced human genomes uh, at our disposal. Um, and it's not just the DNA sequence itself. So I've been highlighting sequence changes or um, particular, uh, again, sequencing those particular base pairs of the genome. But there's also been a proliferation of studies of all sorts of other genomic technologies that can measure nearly every aspect of the genetic system of a cell. So for example, you might also measure whether genes are being turned off or on in a cell. This is called gene expression. So if we think about this, um, every single uh, cell in our body has basically the same DNA sequence, okay, 99.99999% the same DNA sequence in every single cell. So how are cells different and do different functions and have, say, lung tissue and heart tissue? Um, the way they're different is different genes are turned on in those, in those cells, okay? And so gene expression measures uh, which genes are being turned on in those cells. And then there's other things called epigenetics that influence which genes are being turned on in those cells, okay? And so we now have the technology to measure all of the genes in the, in the human body, 20,000 genes, and when they're turned off or on in various tissues and various cells. And also we can measure all of these other epigenetic factors two of which are methylation and microRNA expression that have the ability to turn off and on genes in various cells. So just imagine this. We've got this huge snapshot using all of these different biomedical technologies of really what's going on in, uh, in a, a cell or a tissue sample. At the same time, switching gears and going on the neuroscience track, there has been a huge surge in neuroscience technologies. So this is actually a snapshot of the web page from the Brain Initiative, which is an NIH and uh, an NSF and DARPA funded project that the Obama White House um, initially uh, started. And this is over a billion dollar investment in neuroscience research. And a big component of that is to develop new neuroscience technologies and the tools to analyze the data resulting from those technologies. Now, there's similar projects going on in the European Union. This is the Human Brain Project. This is a snapshot of their website uh, uh, in the EU. Another big investment in neuroscience research. And, uh, of course, uh, there's also the Australian Brain Initiative as, as well. And according to the Australian Brain Alliance, which is hosting this, this brain initiative, um, and several others, they say the challenge of understanding the human brain exceeds that of landing on the moon and sequencing the human genome. Okay, we've done both of those. We've landed on the moon, we've sequenced human genome, now we can sequence the human genome very quickly and very cost-effectively. But still, the mysteries of the brain are unknown. And so there's a lot of technology in this area. And specifically, uh, what this plot is showing is the growth in technology. Let me walk you through this really quick here. This is covering all the different aspects and ways that we can measure what's going on in the brain. Okay? So you can think of the brain um, in a couple of different levels. You can think of it spatially. Okay? At this level here, 
is about the scale of a, of a particular neuron firing. Okay, you can actually go down to the dendrites and the synapses, even smaller. And then as we get bigger and bigger on the spatial sp scale, you might also want to understand and image the whole human brain at this scale. And on this scale, uh, the brain is obviously a dynamic um, uh, uh, organ, and it's, and it's firing, and we want to study how it works, why neurons activate and fire as they do, how they respond to stimuli, and how they produce behavior, and eventually, of course, how they lead to different <laughs> neurological diseases. And so on this scale, it's time, and we can measure this all the way in milliseconds, and neurons fire at about, uh, at, a, at about two milliseconds, so right around here, all the way to much longer here. And these right here in 1988 showed these kind of um, snapshots, so different neuroscience technologies can measure different aspects, either at the microscale level, looking at individual neurons and how they fire, all the way to the macro scale, which is the whole brain, and how the whole brain works as a system. And in 1988, um, each of these technologies kind of has a window into only one small aspect. We can't get all the neurons in the human brain and, and, uh, and image the whole brain at the same time. And you can see now in 2014, this is the picture here. We filled in a lot of those gaps with neuroscience technologies. So now, they can, using lots of technologies, you can see the brain work in whole uh, different temporal and spatial scales. And these are really important for understanding what's really going on in the brain. Can we understand how it works and also how it relates to, to disease? Just as, as an example here, this is an example of a microscale image. So what you see here are actually, these right here are the neurons, and these here are the dendrites that are extending from neurons. This is from uh, optogenetics, and this is actually um, in a mouse retina. Okay, so you can kind of see these neurons here. So this is at a very small scale. This is on the scale of microns, so very, very tiny scale. And uh, scientists can now actually go in and image these and see when the neurons fire. When they're lit up like this, that means a neuron is firing in the mouse's retina. And actually, um, using optogenetics, there's ways to manipulate and make certain neurons fire. And this way, we can test how neurons really work together to respond to stimuli and behavior. At the same time, we've got this whole uh, brain scale um, uh, neuroimaging techniques. And this right here is a, a picture. So this is looking at kind of the top of someone's brain, just like this. Um, and what this, is, what this is from is from diffusion tensor imaging, which follows water molecules and basically outlines the vascular structure in the human brain. And each one of these fiber tracks here is basically following the trajectories, the trajectories of water molecules or the vasculature in the brain. So you can kind of see how the brain is structured from these images here. And here's another view. This is kind of a side view of the brain, just like this. And this is from the Human Connectome Project, which is another very large-scale project to image the human brain. Okay? So you can see here, we've got tons of new technologies in both genomics and neuroscience. And someone might ask, with all this new technology that's coming out, uh, why have we not solved all the, the mysteries of life and, say, the mysteries of human disease and health? Um, and uh, some of these mysteries, of course, we have solved, but others we haven't. So let's just take a look at this. This is from a New England Journal of Medicine study here, 
where um, in 1900, the vast majority of people died from infectious diseases. This was pre-penicillin and other antibiotics, and um, less so for other diseases. But now, the uh, top causes of death are things like cancer and heart disease, and you'll see Alzheimer's disease right here. And in fact, in the United States, here is uh, a pictorial uh, representation of the top 10 causes of death in the United States. And you'll see right here in red, this is cancer, it's right here. So even though we've sequenced the whole uh, human genome, we've not yet figured out what is causing cancers, uh, why do they grow, why uh, do they metastasize, and how can we cure them. Another thing to point to here is Alzheimer's disease. There's a growing, uh, uh, this is actually a growing problem um, in the United States and also in Australia. And again, um, we are, there's been tons of technologies developed to understand the brain, but we still have, uh, we still have very little understanding of what is causing Alzheimer's disease. So there's these great unknowns in human health and disease. Um, just the same type of plot um, represented differently for the top 10 causes of death in Australia. Very similar heart disease we see here. Um, this is dementia and Alzheimer's disease, actually a much larger portion of, the, of, of uh, the causes of death, and also various cancers here. Okay? So some of the same causes of death. So the question is why, uh, when we have all these technologies, have we not yet fully understood what causes cancer, what causes Alzheimer's disease, and understand how the, how the genome really works um, to produce disease and how the human brain works. Um, and this is a quote um, that I think nicely summarizes this. Even though we have petabytes of raw information that could provide clues for everything from presenting disease to shrinking healthcare costs, um, the question is if we can figure out how to use these. Okay? So the real crux and the real bottleneck with all of this is the data. There is so much raw data out there that has been produced by all these technologies. Um, and basically, it's up to us to figure out how to use all of the data out there to solve these pressing health and medical questions here. So um, just to give an example from both um, genetics and neuroscience of the scale of data that is produced. Uh, this is from the Cancer Genome Atlas, which is uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health uh, in the United States. And this was a huge, large-scale project that uh, looked at over 11,000 patients. They uh, resected tumor samples during surgery. And on those tumor samples, they ran uh, basically every available genomics technology at the time was run on these tumor samples to get, try to get a complete genetic snapshot of what's going on in those tumors. They did this for over 33 different types of cancers, so lung, breast, colon, and so forth, so all different types of cancers. And in total, this is about 2.5 petabytes worth of data, okay, so a lot of data out there. Um, a similar project that I mentioned previously, the Human Connectome Project, the goal of this project is to understand how the human brain is connected and how the human brain works structurally. And they, for right now, there's over 900 subjects that uh, have been a part of this study, and they've been using multiple types of very high-resolution neuroimaging scans to get complete neuroimaging pictures of these people's brains. Okay? And this is over 20 petabytes worth of data. Okay? So you might be wondering, 
what is a petabyte? Okay, that's probably not, we use, we use gigabytes, you know, we use megabytes a lot, but what on earth is a, peg, is a petabyte? It's basically a lot of data here. Um, so, um, 20 petabytes is the amount of data processed by Google every day. Okay? Imagine all of those Google searches, all of your Gmail accounts and everything, and that is the amount of data that uh, the Human Connectome Project has generated. Okay? And again, this is only 900 subjects, 900 patients were scanned and it produced 20 petabytes of data. Okay? So you can understand now the scale of, quote, big data that's produced by these biomedical technologies. It is really that big. And the question is, of course, what do we do with them? So um, this is a nice quote. Medical data can not only offer tremendous insights that change the face of modern medicine, but also offer rewarding opportunities to data science, scientists who must decipher this data. And that's always what I like to call myself as a data scientist. I like to go in and I investigate data. So what is a data scientist? Uh, what is a data scientist and what is data science? So everybody out there, I've heard so many different uh, definitions of data science. This is the one that I happen to like the best. Um, I call data science the art and science of extracting meaningful and actionable information from data. Okay? And I really like that keyword actionable, right? We need to, from all that massive amount of, of uh, data from the Human Connectome Project, we need to understand the fundamental principles of the brain so that we can help solve diseases. That's what I mean by actionable data. Okay? I also notice here that I don't just call this a science, I also call it an art. And I actually think there's a lot of creativity and innovation and problem solving and, and kind of an art to how we go about the process of data science. And what is data science exactly in terms of the skill set required? I really think of it as an intersection of three different fields. Um, of course, I'm a statistician by training, so I think the most important is that statistics and math background. Um, so, and, and data science is really the intersection of statistics and math with computer science and that programming ability um, so that you can actually work with and manipulate big data sets. But of course, a big part of doing data science is uh, domain expertise. So, um, for example, when I work on projects in genetics and neuroscience, I don't just work with myself and with, say, other computer scientists and statisticians. I work on a team of investigators that often has, uh, for my cancer projects, I often have oncologists involved, and I have geneticists involved and bioinformaticians, and myself, and sometimes computer scientists. For my neuroscience projects, I typically have two to three different types of neuroscientists that focus on various aspects, neurologists, myself. Um, and so these are large teams of people that get together that have lots of different expertise to tackle these data science challenges. Okay, so uh, now uh, hopefully I've motivated, there's a lot of big data out there in, in biomedical technologies and that data science is really important for understanding this data, and I want to leave you with, a, um, with examples of what types of tools data scientists are developing to help people understand this massive amount of data. And today I'm specifically going to talk about networks. Okay, so when you hear networks, what do you think of? You probably think of uh, social networks and social media, things like Facebook, things like Twitter, LinkedIn, and so forth. 
Uh, we all know how Facebook works, right? Um, I'm friends with you. Maybe you're not friends with me. Uh, you know, different privacy settings for different friends, right? But we all have our friend groups that, that extend out in various ways, and we kind of know how those work. Um, so in, in Facebook, this is actually an interesting um, visual. This um, was a particular researcher took uh, his, uh, his friends, his immediate friends on Facebook, and then all of kind of uh, the friends of friends on Facebook, and fit a network model that connected all these various friends together. And what do you see here in this kind of friends of friends Facebook social network right here? What we really see are groups, right? We see somehow that there's this group or this community uh, structure in this network. Um, for example, maybe these uh, people are, this is probably the work network, right? Uh, you have a lot of people from work that you know, but there's some strong connections there, but, you know, some loose connections also. It's, it's work. Maybe this is like, uh, this is the guys that he goes out and drinks a beer with at the end of the day or something. And this is a, a sports team, for example. You, you kind of see how these work. So there's this type of community structure. So interestingly, this notion of social networks that we see on, um, from Facebook and LinkedIn and so forth can be used to help us understand neuroscience and genetics as well. So here is a pictorial representation of a structural network estimated using DTI, which is diffusion tensor imaging of the human brain. You're looking at three different images of the brain, the top of the brain here, the side of the brain, and this is the front of the brain here. And what do we also see here in this type of network? We also see it's organized around those kind of grouping principles, so that type of community principle that we saw in social networks. Interesting. Uh, these two networks here are two uh, pictorial representations of networks estimated from yeast. And uh, this is a protein-protein interaction, so how proteins interact with each other in yeast. And this is a gene expression network, how genes influence whether other genes are turned off or on. Okay? And these two networks, if we look at them, they have that same type of community structure that we saw in social networks. Okay? So because of this, we might say, ha, there's something there. I think that networks could be a good way to look at this type of data and analyze this type of data and hopefully find structure in both genetics data and neuroscience data as well. So um, brain networks. Let's start, with, let's start with the brain. So people are using networks to understand brain structure in part because neurons themselves form a network and how they're connected to other neurons uh, through their dendrites, okay? So there's actually very uh, individualized connections. So we know that neurons work as a network. And in fact, on the micro scale, this is about 20 microns here, on the micro scale, we can actually infer network interactions between individual neurons. So this is a still, still shot from calcium fluorescence imaging, which is a type of micro scale neuroimaging technology where uh, each one of these cell bodies is a particular neuron, and you can estimate and fit, net, fit networks to understand uh, which neurons, say this neuron fires, and it influences the firing patterns in this neuron or this neuron and so forth. So this is on the micro scale, but we can also do this on the macro scale, the whole human brain scale. Again, you're looking at uh, fiber tracks, so this is a representation of the structure of human brain estimated from diffusion tensor imaging. And you can see here, this is an estimate of how the brain is structurally connected based on these. Okay, so which 
regions in the brain are, are more strongly connected than others. So networks seem like a really good way to understand the brain going all the way from microscales and individual neurons to the whole brain and macro scale. So what exactly do I mean by network models? Okay, so here's just a, a very simple kind of illustration here. Suppose we have three brain regions here, and we are recording from those three brain regions, okay? So we get a recording here, um, a time series. You can kind of think of it as a time series uh, readout uh, from each of these three brain regions. And if you inspect these closely and look at them, it kind of looks like the purple and the orange one seem to fire, have very similar firing patterns. They seem to spike at about the same place, if you look closely. So if we wanted to represent this visually as a network, what we could do is say each one of these brain regions corresponds to a particular node in the network. We call these nodes right here. And since the purple and the orange look very similar, we say these are probably very highly correlated, and they form a very strong edge. And we draw an edge between these two nodes in the network to represent that they are correlated and go together. And there might be some, it still looks like uh, green and purple have, kind of go up and down similarly. There might be a weaker edge here, okay? So what are these type of network models or graphical models used for? And what are they, okay? So first, these are multivariate probability models. All multivariate probability models means is that I want to understand the probability of observing activity in brain region one, two, and three jointly together. I want to understand how those three brain regions fire as a unit, okay? So these are probably really useful to understand, but they're also great to study and visualize relationships between features and really big data sets, okay? You can imagine, because these data sets are so big, it's really hard to study who's influencing who and what genes influence other genes and what brain regions are talking to other brain regions. Network models can help us study these relationships and visualize them. Um, and again, the dependencies are characterized by edges between these features here. Okay, so this is the only slide that has some math on it. Forgive me, I had to do one slide. I am a statistician after all. Um, so, but, but just zone in on one thing. All this is saying here, this is an example of what we call a network or a graphical model in statistics. And what you see here is this is a multivariate probability. It basically says the probability of observing a firing pattern in brain region one, two, and three, in brain region purple, green, and orange, is equal to this. All this top line means is it's equal to some intrinsic kind of function of how those three brain regions operate. So there's some kind of intrinsic uh, uh, function of how these operate. And here, this is the interaction between how brain region one and brain region three fire together, okay? So it's basically saying right here, these two brain regions, they're talking together, they fire together, and so we expect to observe uh, brain, we, we expect to observe brain activation that's correlated or connected if those two brain regions are talking together, okay? So this is just one example of a type of uh, graphical model, and this is just what I mean when I'm talking about graphical models in this talk. Okay, so what do statisticians and machine learners do with graphical models um, as research tools? 
So I work a lot in this area, and this is a very active area of research uh, for a lot of statisticians and machine learners. And specifically, you can work to develop new classes of graphical models. I'm going to show you an example of this when I get to my genetics example later. Um, you can also learn the network structure or connectivity from big data. We want to translate big data that is not recorded in the form of a network. And we want to infer, for example, this is uh, exactly what neuroimaging does, where we take pictures or movies of the brain over time, and from that we want to infer how the brain is connected. Okay, that's what we mean by learning the network structure. And I'm a statistician, so we always like to, when we uh, fit these network models, we always like to give statistical guarantees, which typically come in the form of, with high probability, you can recover the network structure uh, correctly, and we can characterize the uncertainty in our network estimates. Okay, so this is the type of research that people do when it comes to networks. So a specific example of, uh, this is an example from my research um, on uh, brain networks, and the uh, question here is in multi-subject neuroimaging studies. Imagine we have a large study from several subjects, and we've uh, scanned the brains of many subjects, and for each subject, we estimate their personal brain connectivity. We want to get a full uh, brain network estimate for each one of those subjects. And then you can imagine uh, this could be very useful for understanding various neurological diseases. And in fact, people have used brain networks to understand autism and schizophrenia and Alzheimer's disease and so forth. So you might want to ask, how are uh, patients with healthy brains different in terms of their brain connectivity than those with a neurological disease? So imagine we have now, um, we've got this, for each subject in the population, we've got a population of networks. How do we compare those networks together? So I'm just going to briefly mention our solution here is to offer a model that is a two-level model that models the behavior of networks for each subject in the population separately, and then a population model that governs how the uh, population of networks works. And we also developed an estimation and inference procedure. This is, again, using kind of those statistics and machine learning techniques. Um, but I really think uh, a better illustration of this is through a quick case study. And this is, uh, this is not a neurological disease, but it's just a fun case study that is, is nice and illustrative. And this is a case study on color sequence synesthesia. Um, how many of you have heard of color sequence synesthesia? Ah, a great number, okay. So this is basically where um, a person automatically associates a color with any numbers or letters that are in a sequence. Okay? For example, this person's Y is bright green. All, every time they see a Y, they automatically see green in their head. Or they hear a Y, they see green in their head. Okay? And the reason this is interesting to study is because these uh, uh, people with synesthesia are otherwise completely normal. Um, and uh, if you stick them in an fMRI scanner and scan their brains, you can actually see very little differences in terms of their brain activation. Okay, so they appear completely normal on neuroimaging scans. So the question is, what is really going on that produces this effect where you automatically associate color with letters and numbers? So um, I uh, worked with a neuroscientist um, at Baylor College of Medicine, and uh, we investigated this with functional MRI. 
Functional MRI, this is a big uh, MRI machine here. This is a three Tesla magnet. Uh, you kind of roll them in there and you sit in the magnet and the data that's produced is actually really cool. It's basically a three dimensional movie of your brain as it's being activated. Okay, so what you get here is uh, these different colors show areas of activation in the brain. Okay, so imagine if we had a movie of this playing and we could see uh, how different brain regions are activated uh, while in the scanner. Okay, so this is kind of a way of peeking inside the brain into what's really going on and what you're really thinking about and doing inside that scanner. So the uh, study for color sequence synesthesia um, this is a, just a schematic of the study design. It was based on Sesame Street, okay? Because Sesame Street has a lot of A is for apple, B is for ball, C is for cat. I, I actually have no idea how, I probably got those all wrong, but something like that, right? Like there's a lot of letters and numbers in Sesame Street. And so the study design um, hypothesized, uh, the first part is you played the audio recording of Sesame Street with no video. And we hypothesized that this is when synesthetes would automatically, every time they saw A, they would associate it with their color for A, maybe magenta or something, and B associate it with blue, for example. And then they were shown a video and then rest. Okay, so we hypothesized that something would be happening here with synesthetes that doesn't happen with normal control. Okay? And um, the way we address this is instead of looking at activation, we said it's probably got to do with connectivity. Right? Maybe the color regions in the brain are talking to the regions in the brain that process letters and numbers in synesthetes, but not talking to those regions in, in, in patients without synesthesia. Um, and so we estimated for every subject in the study, there was about 50 subjects in the study, uh, we estimated a brain network. Here's just a rendering of one of the synesthetes' brains that we estimated um, while they were hearing A is for apple and B is for ball and et cetera. And you see here, a lot of activity is going on. This is the back of the brain and the visual cortex here. So a lot of the visual regions were lining up when the synesthetes heard this. And in terms of connectivity, we use my statistical techniques to understand and assign a, a p-value and basically quantify uh, how likely this is not due to chance. And the hypothesis here was that these visual regions in the left and the right hemisphere right here that process colors, these are the six visual regions that are known to process colors, in synesthetes, we hypothesized that they would be talking to these three regions that are known to process graphemes. Graphemes are just uh, letters and numbers, essentially, and the visual word form area. And you can see kind of pictorial renderings of where these are in the brain here. And we see this is just a, a, a schematic here. In controls, these three regions right here are the regions that process letters and numbers in the brain. And these purple regions are the ones that process colors. We see in controls, uh, they're not really talking to each other that much in these networks. But in synesthetes, during the audio portion, again, there was no video, suddenly these color regions are massively talking to these, uh, these word form regions and letter and number regions in the brain. And using our techniques, we were able to detect this and put a p-value and quantify the uncertainty in this. So here's just an example of how we use these techniques. Um, and we also saw this with clustering. For example, this right graphene region right here in controls didn't really cluster or didn't group together with other... Whoa! 
That was startling. Um, glad I wasn't two steps closer to that. Um, and must really like, I don't know, the pretty brain pictures, whatever. Um, okay, so uh, in, in synesthetes, uh, this right graphene region right here didn't, didn't necessarily group with other brain regions, but in synesthetes, this right graphene region clustered again with all those regions in the visual cortex that process letters and numbers. Basically saying, these guys, the visual regions, were talking a lot to these, uh, these word form areas. Um, so that's just an example of uh, how data science tools and how network uh, tools and network models can be used to understand uh, brain networks. And again, the synesthesia study is kind of fun and easy to understand. We've also applied this to autism uh, work as well and Alzheimer's as well, so other neurological diseases. Um, just, uh, I want to briefly also talk about uh, genetic networks. So we've, we've seen this slide before. Um, so the motivation for working with genetic networks um, comes from the Cancer Genome Atlas. Again, this is 11,000 patients, 33 different types of cancer, and they literally use every available genomic technology to profile these tumor samples from all of these patients. Um, and here's just kind of a pictorial representation of all the different types of technology that was used to characterize these tumor samples. The reason this is so important in cancer to characterize um, all, all the different aspects of, of the genome of, of tumor samples is because in cancer, there's not just one thing that goes wrong. It's not just one gene that goes wrong that causes a tumor cell to form and then grow and proliferate and spread. What it is, is it's a hundred or maybe even more than a hundred things that go wrong. It's very complex dependencies that tend to go wrong. Lots of things have to fail, basically, before a cell becomes a tumor cell and before they grow and spread. And this is why it's so important to study every available genomic technology to understand cancer. Right now, scientists are actually working with each type of technology separately and analyzing data from them separately we would like to put all of these together, okay? And I'm gonna specifically zoom in so we can really visualize one particular aspect of this network. And this is a uh, to study gene expression. We call this to study gene regulation. Again, this is a measure of how much a gene is turned off or on in those tumor cells. This is really important to study because often tumor cells have very different patterns of which genes have been turned off and on um, to make them, characterize them as tumors and also have them grow. Just some examples to give you concrete examples of this. Um, there are some oncogenes, which are basically genes that cause a cell, when those genes turn on, they cause a cell to turn into a tumor cell. And then there's growth factors, and, and, and growth factors coupled with oncogenes uh, form, it, have those tumor cells grow and proliferate and spread. And then there's actually um, the opposite. There are some genes that are protective against uh, tumor cells. And when those genes are turned off, your kind of protection genes are turned off, then those tumor cells can grow again, okay? So this is really important to study in cancer, basically, which genes are turned off or, off or on. And again, microRNA and methylation, which are aspects of epigenetics, regulate gene expression. What these do is they have the ability to turn off and on particular genes. The reason why this is so important to study in cancer is because epigenetics 
your DNA sequence doesn't really change that much. You can acquire what are called new mutations or somatic mutations in tumor cells, okay? But by and large, the DNA sequence is exactly the same. So what's different in tumor cells is often who's turning off and on those genes. And uh, epigenetics can actually change with lifestyle and environmental factors. So we know, for example, lots of environmental factors are associated with cancer. Uh, with cancer. Think smoking and lung cancer would be a classic example of an environmental factor. So smoking often changes these types of epigenetic factors that control gene expression. So it's really important to study all three of these aspects to really understand what's going on in tumor samples here. But what's really challenging about studying these, so not only is this big, so let me just say, uh, on the order of 20,000 uh, genes in the human genome, we have about 1,000 to 5,000 microRNAs. Um, there, you can record these at many sites, anywhere from uh, about 400,000 sites up to a million sites. So the data is big, but uh, more uh, challenging is the data looks very different. In statistics, we say that the data has very different distributions or different domains to the data. What this really means is that the technology that records gene expression records them as count values. Okay, so if a gene is turned off, it has a value of zero. If a gene's turned way on, it might have a value of, say, um, uh, 200. Medium turned on, maybe 10 or 20 or so forth. Okay, so they're actual integer count values. MicroRNA expression is recorded in nice continuous value centered at zero approximately. Um, Bell-shaped curve, we call this the Gaussian or normal distribution, which you might remember from back from your introductory stack classes back in the day. Um, and uh, methylation data is recorded on a scale of zero to one, okay? So imagine that all of this data is recorded on completely different scales or they have different distributions or different domains. And the question is how do we put all of this together? So people have been using genetic networks from kind of older technology that was Gaussian for many years. And there's tens of thousands of papers that have used this. Um, and what you're looking at here is estimated for microarrays. Micro this is a glioblastoma gene expression network. Each one of these nodes is a particular gene. This is our goal is to get something like this. Each one of these nodes is a particular gene, and each one of these edges relate how these genes are basically uh, turned off or on together. Okay? We know this to be important because genes work together in pathways to produce particular proteins that then give the cell its function. Okay? So we see this here, and these have been widely used. So this uh, technology uh, came about in the late 1990s, and uh, these types of graphs have been used to understand gene expression for quite a while. And experimental biologists really like these because it saves them time and money. So for example, the way these have been used in science is uh, for, uh, from high-throughput data such as uh, microarrays and other genomic technologies, you estimate these networks. And before uh, you could do this, scientists would kind of have to make educated guesses about which genes to test to figure out which genes were really communicating or talking with each other or working together. And now we can let the networks kind of guide this. So we might say, this looks like a really important gene right here, and we want to test this, but we're only going to test the ones that have edges to other genes. So it's guiding the experimentalists and saves them a lot of time and money. But of course, um, we can only do this, this past technology here, 
um, that people have used, again, uh, very widely and well-known techniques, um, is only good for continuous value data. And in terms of graphical models, um, there are two main classes of existing graphical models. The first is Gaussian graphical models, and these are the ones that are used for continuous value data. Okay? So things like on a real line, uh, for example. And Ising or Ising models, which are binary values. These are basically yes, no type values. So we can have networks that we, um, there, there's known models for this. But the question is, if we really want to study all aspects and integrate data from multiple aspects of this cancer genome atlas data, we need to be able to also fit graphical models to count value data and also to um, bounded, so uh, data between zero and one, data that might be skewed, continuous, and so forth. So how do we fit graphical models to these other classes? So um, this is uh, some work from my research. And the idea here is to leverage what we know about univariate distributions. So I apologize, the next two slides might have just a wee bit of statistics of them. So you have to think back to your uh, uh, statistics and probability class. So um, uh, univariate distribution means just one variable. So if I just had one variable and it was count valued, what would be a possible distribution that I would use to model that variable? Just someone shout it out. Let's go for it. Louder? Someone, I heard someone say it. Normal. Normal. We could, yes, if the counts are large. What about a Poisson distribution? Right? Like our nice count value distributions that we know and love. It, basically, when we're doing univariate, we know what types of distributions to use as statisticians. So the idea is to leverage these to, and we make a key assumption here that conditional distributions follow these known univariate distributions of a particular family. And I'm skipping all of the math here. There's a lot of technical details. But basically, you can prove, if you make these key assumptions along the way, you can prove that a joint network distribution exists over, over these variables that are, say, count-valued uh, random variables or bounded random variables. So instead of having just a class of network models for the white guys or the black guys here, now we can have striped and polka-dotted ones as well, meaning we can basically have count-valued graphical models and uh, bounded uh, graphical models as well. So this is open up. Just imagine all of the type of data that comes in the form of counts. Um, this is used a lot in Twitter with word counts. Um, and analyzing word counts and Twitter data, we could use this um, typographical model. So this opens up the classographical models to a lot of different types. In genetics, the, uh, the leading type of uh, genomic technology to measure gene expression, whether genes are turned off or on, is RNA sequencing or next generation sequencing. And we can use these Poisson graphical models or these count-valued graphical models to fit these types of gene expression networks. And this is an example from lung cancer where we fit, and we have um, denoted some key biomarkers that were discovered from this network here. Okay? But of course the question is, so now I've taken care of, now we can fit a separate network to just these guys over here, just gene expression, just microRNAs, and just methylation here. But how do we put all of these different types of data together? Again, that's the holy grail, because we know all these things work together in the system and the tumor cell, and lots of these things have to go wrong for that tumor to form and proliferate. So we want to study all of these together. How do we do this? 
Again, we make a key assumption um, that the conditional distributions come from different exponential families. Again, I'm skipping the math, and you can work out lots of technical details here, but, and show that a joint integrated distribution exists, and it has a closed form. And this is kind of, this is really cool. Here's a pictorial representation of what these types of network models look like. So imagine you've got different chunks of data of all different types here, and you can fit graphical models or understand them as a network and understand how these different types of data relate to each other with directed or undirected edges. And you can get fancy and, and, and mix all of the things up as well, but this is probably what we use for genomics examples. The implication of this, the reason this is important, is uh, not only do we have a network model that can jointly model data of different types, but this is the first multivariate distribution that can directly parameterize dependencies between data of mixed types. Okay, so it's the first way that we can characterize a probability model for data that's count valued and continuous valued and binary valued in the same distribution. So this is going to be really critical and help us study these cancer, uh, these cancer genomic networks. So I'm just going to uh, close here with an example of how we use this. This is a case study of ovarian cancer. I have a good co uh, collaborator who is an ovarian cancer oncologist, and he's really interested in studying which genes are turned off and on and how are they regulated in ovarian cancer. And this is kind of our model of how we uh, suppose this to work. For example, the methylation, uh, the CPG sites, and the microRNAs are influencing which genes are turned off or on. So this is the model we use. And we fit this to the data available from the Cancer Genome Atlas, which I mentioned uh, previously. So when we fit this model, so again, this is using uh, my techniques for mixed types of network models. This is a pictorial representation of the ovarian cancer gene regulatory network. Now, what you see here in red are all of the gene nodes, and what you see in blue are microRNAs. Again, these are guys that turn off particular genes. What you see in green are, uh, are methylation sites. Again, these guys can turn off and on these genes here. So we see there's certainly some well-connected, this, this is a network where they're really talking to each other and they're very well-connected. But I just want to zoom in and show you how we use these networks to really understand what's going on in cancer by zooming in on particular microRNAs right here. We see these guys seem to be regulating a lot of genes, right? The size of the nodes you see here um, is uh, scaled according to how many neighbors they have or how many other genes they're connected to, essentially. So if we zoom in on one of those microRNAs, this is mirror uh, 425 here, and we zoom in on this, these are all of the genes that are in the module that seems to be regulated by microRNA 425, uh, which doesn't have a creative name, but anyway. Um, you see here, uh, there's a lot of key genes here. So um, the labeled genes are known biomarkers in the literature for ovarian cancer, and the square box genes represented here are actually um, uh, six of the top 10 mutated genes in ovarian cancer seem to be regulated by microRNA-425. Let me say that again. Six of the top 10 genes that are mutated in ovarian cancer from our network model seem to be regulated by this one particular microRNA. So the reason we're really excited about this 
and that we use these type of network models uh, to estimate this is because microRNAs and epigenetics, it's really hard to change our DNA sequence. That would be some gene editing. We probably, it's not quite ethical to do that in humans, right? Um, but we can change your epigenetics uh, with drug therapies. You can change microRNAs, for example. And so if we say, ah, this microRNA seems to be really bad, right? Seems to be associated with a lot of very bad genes in ovarian cancer, we can build a personalized drug that can turn that microRNA off and then hopefully help stop the spread of ovarian cancer and stop uh, those cells from turning into tumor cells. Okay? And this is in the process because, of course, these things take years to develop. But I'm just illustrating here an example of how, using these types of network models, you can lead these to discovering personalized drug therapies. And so this is just one example that we've learned from this network that my uh, oncologist collaborators are going forward with and working with to study ovarian cancer here. Okay, so just to summarize quickly, um, so I talked about big biomedical data. Hopefully I really motivated um, that there's a lot of data out there, that the data is growing, and that um, it's, a, it's really exciting data, right? The amount of genetics data and neuroscience out there really holds the keys and potential for understanding human disease and how the brain works and lots of, of, of great things like this. But a big bottleneck to working with this data is, uh, is people that have data science, data science skills, this type of statistics and math and computer science and domain expertise knowledge. And so we really need data scientists that can sort through this massive amount of data to make key discoveries in basic biology, also in health, um, and, of course, human disease as well. And hopefully I've uh, given you an example of how, of a specific data science tool. There's lots of data, scientists, uh, data science tools out there. Data scientists are doing really cool stuff these days in big data. It's a super exciting field. Um, but hopefully I've given you just a kind of brief taste of how one particular tool set using networks, we can understand uh, uh, how both brain, the brain is uh, structured and works together and also genomics networks and how they uh, uh, arise and can potentially be used to understand cancer better. Um, and with that, uh, I thank you very much for your attention.